Amen. Such a wonderful time of worship already. Jesus does love us deeply, so much so that he wants us to grow and become more like him. That's one of the reasons we're here. We're here to worship God for who he is, but we're here to build one another up. We're here to receive the word. And a big part of our worship is hearing the word preached. It's an often neglected spiritual discipline these days, but hearing the word of God preached in the local church setting. If you're new with us, the way we do that here is to go through a book of the Bible, verse by verse. We started way back in September with the book of Ephesians. We got a little interrupted there in the spring, did some topical messages on issues we were facing. But uh, we've been back in Ephesians for a while now, and we're in Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, picking up in verses 15 through 21. What we do in preaching here is called expository preaching. We're looking at paragraphs, we're looking at verses, we're looking at words, and we're seeing what God intended us to see. We're not skipping over things, we're not jumping around. We want to get into the context of the book of Ephesians. And the context of this paragraph today is walk in the wisdom of Christ. Walk in the wisdom of Christ. I'd hope to get through all the verses. But as we know with Paul's letters, they're very deep. They're very rich. You could preach a sermon on one word. Many do. Many of the Puritans did that very thing. Today we're just going to look at the first three verses, but I want to read the whole section here to you. It is one unit. It's all about walking in the wisdom of Christ. Ephesians 5, starting in verse 15. Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time, because the days are evil. So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation. But be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. And be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Are you living a wise or a foolish Christian life? That's what the text here is addressing. How are we living our lives as Christians? Many Christians default into worldly ways of living, worldly ways of thinking, putting their Bible down and letting it collect dust. Many Christians are not at all involved with other Christians. They're not all involved with the regular worship and the church services and the Bible studies and the admonishment that other Christians bring. But the scriptures teach us to live wisely before God. And no one exhibited that better than our Lord Jesus Christ. He was the ultimate example of how to live with godly wisdom. Every thought he had was godly. Every action he took was one that the Father had already determined that he would take. And had given him to take. And that he loved to fulfill. Oh, this Bible. I just don't want to have anything to do with it. No, he lived it out perfectly. In fact, if he hadn't lived it out perfectly, he wouldn't be the perfect sacrifice for us. He was the perfect example. And he left us with writings, with the New Testament, to give us an example of how to live and to tell us directly 
do this. Don't do this. Now, sometimes Christians think it's all about doing. I've got to do. Sometimes unbelievers think Christianity is just all morality. Be good. Don't drink. Don't smoke. Don't chew. I won't finish the rest of that, but that's what I heard growing up. Well, it's not. That's not how a person is saved, but there is things we're to do once we are saved, once we are justified. Now, there is a way we're supposed to live that glorifies God. There's good deeds that the Lord has already planned for us. We saw in Ephesians chapter 2. God has given us a way to live. He has given us laws. We can say that word around here because it's in the Bible. He's given us good laws, laws that please Him. He's given us commands. And we've seen this in the second half of Ephesians. The second half has been about how Christians live, the Christian walk. This is the fifth walk that we've seen since starting Ephesians chapter 4. There's been four before that. He said in chapter 4, walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you have been called. Then he said, no longer walk as the Gentiles also walk. Then we saw in chapter 5 that we're to walk in love, the love of Christ. Then we're to walk in the light and the truth of God's word as a light to the world, letting God's word shine on our own sinful hearts to expose our sin. And we're supposed to shine light onto others to help them see their sin. And now we see, starting in verse 15, a command to walk in wisdom. Here Paul is teaching us that the lifestyle of the Ephesian believers should directly correspond to their new nature in Christ. They are new creations in Christ. And they're to live opposite than the world and the world's wisdom and live in Christ-like wisdom, making good decisions, knowing the Scriptures well doing the things that he's going to tell us here in this passage. Now, really, this section goes all the way through 6, 9, chapter 6, verse 9. Of course, we're not looking at all of that today, but this last walk pretty much carries through the end of the chapter, and then he'll talk about standing firm. So it's walk, 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 and then he talks about standing firm at the end, and then he closes out the letter. So what's the purpose today? What's the point? Well, I want you to see here that all those who trust in Christ must live. We must. We, we don't get an option. It's not about what we want. It's about what Christ wants. We must live as he taught us. With the wisdom that comes from above and not the world's wisdom. So first, in this paragraph, he's going to introduce a general command to walk. So we need to look at that first. Then he's going to give four imperatives on how to live as believers in the wisdom of Christ. So the main point and then four imperatives, four commands. We won't get through all four today. We'll just cover the first two. But we need to know this. Otherwise, we're just stumbling around. We're just bumbling around in the dark. Are you godly enough to determine your own walk and how to please God? I can tell you you're not. That's why God gave us his Bible. And thank God that he did. Without it, where would we be? We would be stumbling around, hurting ourselves, hurting others, leading people into sin. So first, let's look at the main point. The main point is in verse 15. And I'll summarize it like this. Live your Christian life in the wisdom Christ gives. Christ gives you wisdom if you're His. He gives you wisdom through the Spirit that is in you. And we've got to live that out. We must. And so Paul says, therefore, based on everything he's already said, based on the fact that we're not to live like the world, that we're to live in love, the love of Christ, that we're to live in the light of Christ. Therefore, be careful. 
Anytime the Bible says be careful, you need to see what it says to be careful about. Literally here, it's look carefully how you walk. Instead of falling asleep, like he talked about in verse 14, that we looked at a few weeks ago, instead of falling asleep as a Christian, instead of laying down and wallowing in sin, we're to wake up. We're to wake up and let the light of Christ shine on us, and we are to live wisely in the world. He gave us the Holy Spirit for that purpose. The word to walk here is peripateo. comes up a lot in Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament. Literally means to go about, to walk around, but it's used figuratively often in the Bible. The Hebrews started this in the Old Testament. God inspired the word there to be used as a sort of walking through different areas of your life. It's not just that you're going from point A to point B in this walk, but you're just walking around in life. You're doing the various things that you do. You're not just walking in wisdom when you come to church. You're not just walking in wisdom when you pray, when you read the Bible. In everything. The point is everything you do, as you go about life, as you move throughout your life, walk in wisdom. It's about how to conduct your life as a believer every day. There's no excuses. There's no, there's no hidden parts of our life that don't include our walk. Your thought life is part of your walk. Your interaction with your spouse is part of your walk. Your interaction at work, your interaction with your kids, your extended family, your church. It's all part of our habitual lifestyle. How are we living? Like all the commands in this paragraph, this, this verb tense to walk is really second person plural. I'll put that in Texan for you. Second person plural is y'all. And it goes like this. Y'all watch your own life carefully. And because it's a y'all, you got to help others watch their life carefully. Watch your own life and help others watch their life. Just like in the last passage, let the light shine on you and you be the light that shines on others so they can see their sin. Well, here, all of these commands in this paragraph are plural. You, the church, should all be doing this and doing it together. Every believer needs the loving and careful help of those in the local church, whether it's in the form of encouragement or admonishment, whether it's building up or using the sword of the Spirit to rebuke us, to correct us. We need that. We need other believers for that. You cannot get this kind of, of help without being in a personal setting. If you were in Frank's class this morning on biblical counseling, that happens with other people. You can read the scripture, but you can't biblically counsel yourself. You need someone else to take you through it and to help you. And he's saying, walk together. The whole church is expected to help one another walk. You can't get this on social media. You can't get this on YouTube. Watching sermons and listening to things online are helpful. They're helpful with your growth. But if that's all you did, if that's all you ever did, live stream, that's not the idea that Paul has in mind here. We're walking in this together. Did you read the covenant? We're joining together in this. We're to help one another. First, we take care of our own, our own walk, and then we help others. And if we're all doing that, we're growing together. Now, it's not just walking that Paul tells us to do, though. He says we must look or, or watch carefully. Now, I like the NASB, but it doesn't have the word look here. I don't know why they left it out, but I'll quote the ESV here. Look carefully. Look carefully, then, how you walk. It's not just that you walk a certain way, but you've got to pay attention to it. And you've got to pay attention carefully. This word carefully that's modifying look means to act with strict focus and attention to details. Walk very, very carefully. Doesn't mean you're 
living your life and always worried that you're doing something wrong. You study the Bible and do your best in living life. If you sin, you confess that, you repent of it, you're cleansed. If it's from the heart. But he's saying, look, pay attention to how you live. Think about it beforehand. Direct your attention to it. Give careful thought to it. Beware of the dangers and needs. Don't be prideful and think, I can do this on my own. I don't need any help. It's me, myself, and the Holy Spirit. Don't need the Bible. Don't need other Christians. Don't need elders. No, Paul says, walk very carefully and pay attention. Look carefully how you do it. The Christian life is not the kind of thing where you just drift around and you see where you end up aimlessly drifting. I'll just wake up today and see what happens. That's not the Christian life. That's the worldly life. The Christian life is, I'm going to glorify God today. And I'm going to take in God's word. And I'm going to pray. And I'm going to try to live those things out the rest of my day and my week and my month and my years. Look carefully. Pay attention to the details of your life. And he says, not as unwise. That's the negative here. Not as an unwise person, but as wise. Unwise is a person without the wisdom of God. Stop living like the world. How many times has Paul said that to us already in Ephesians? Stop living like the world. Why does he say that? Because Christians get saved and they either forget, have bad theology from bad churches or a bad teacher they find online or a bad book, or they just get lazy and fall asleep and they go right back into their old sins. Now, usually when we're saved, God takes care of some of the sins right away. But others he leaves so that we're growing and growing. And we're struggling with them and we're doing battle with them. Being saved does not mean that you're suddenly perfect. That you have no struggles, that there's no sin in your life. But the world gets up every day and says, I'm not worried about it. Sin, what is that? Oh, I feel some guilt, but I'm not going to be concerned. Paul says, don't, don't be unwise. The world lives like that. They don't have the Holy Spirit. They're not united with Christ. They want to live an unwise life. They enjoy that. But he says, live as wise Christians. The believer is called to live wisely. And this word, wise, is sophos. We get the name Sophia from it. It's the Greek word for wisdom, wise. We get sophomore from it. From sophos meaning wise and moron. So you got a wise moron if you're a sophomore. But the idea is live wisely. Live wisely. J.I. Packer in his book, Knowing God, it's a great book. He gives us a definition of godly wisdom. He says, wisdom is the power to see and the inclination to choose the best and highest goal together with the surest means of attaining it. Wisdom means you, you know what you're aiming at. You know the tools to get there. You apply those methods, those tools, and you're going the right direction. That's what wisdom is. We're to be walking around, we're to be living our life in such a way that's going somewhere. And we use the tools that God has given us, the spiritual disciplines, to get there. Biblical wisdom is about the skill of godly living. The skill, not just the knowledge, but the skill. It's not just knowing what the Bible says. There are unbelievers who can memorize the whole New Testament. In fact, in previous days, in Christian schools, like in Europe, for example, in England, they would memorize the whole New Testament, sometimes even in Greek. And people would grow up and leave these schools and be unbelievers, of course. There's no change of heart. Knowledge is not what he's saying here. You know something, yes, as a believer, 
but you're to live it out and you're to have great skill in doing it. You might recite the whole Bible, but if you're not living it, if you're not being a doer of the word, then you're not walking wisely. Christians are to walk wisely like Christ did in his earthly ministry. He didn't just go around quoting verses, although he did, didn't he? He knew those verses. When the devil tempted him, he spit those verses out. But he had wisdom to know which verses to choose, didn't he? And he had wisdom on how to answer the Pharisees like we saw in Mark chapter 3. And he had wisdom to ask him a question before he'd even done the healing. And he had wisdom every day as he lived his life. He was living out godly wisdom. He had skill. And so Paul, as an apostle, is writing this letter. He's inspired by the Spirit to write to the Ephesians. We don't know that there's a a necessary sin that they're dealing with. He's just saying, generally, here's what you need to do in the Christian life. Be careful. Look carefully how you live and be wise. Now, Old Covenant believers, Old Testament believers were to walk in wisdom too. It's not just a New Covenant thing, although it's more clear in the New Covenant. We get an example in Jesus Christ, but there's a lot in the Old Testament about wisdom, isn't there? And instead of just ignoring that, I think we should turn to it. Proverbs chapter 9. Let's see the contrast that King Solomon brings out on wisdom. Proverbs 9.1. This idea of being foolish and being wise goes back to the Garden of Eden. goes back to the first sin. To be wise means to follow God. To be wise means to do godly things. But to be worldly wise, to be living in the wisdom of world, that means to serve yourself. That means to live as you please. So Proverbs 9 personifies this in two women. Proverbs 9.1, wisdom has built her house. She has hewn out her seven pillars. She's prepared her food. She's prepared her mixed wine. She's also set her table. She has sent out her maidens. She calls from the tops of the heights of the city. Whoever is naive, foolish, whoever is unwise, let him turn in here. To him who lacks understanding, she says, come eat of my food and drink of the wine I have mixed. Forsake your folly and live and proceed in the way of understanding. This is speaking to God's people under the old covenant, under the Mosaic covenant. They knew what the law was. They knew the book of Deuteronomy. They had been given the law. They had been given the scriptures. And they still chose to live like the world. It's a repeating pattern in the Old Testament. And so Solomon writes here in this proverb, turn away from that. Because wisdom is always calling out. Wisdom is always there. We have the scriptures. We don't need to act like wisdom is hidden somewhere. We don't have to go up on a mountain and and join some sort of Buddhist temple to get wisdom. It's right here and it's being printed every day and shipped around the world. But folly also calls out. Skip down to verse 13. The woman of folly is boisterous. She is naive and knows nothing. She sits at the doorway of her house on a seat by the high places of the city. So she's in the high places. She's in the wealthy places. Foolishness is in the place where you think all the aristocrats are, all the wise people, all the the professors, the PhDs. She's calling to those who pass by, who are making their path straight. Whoever is naive, let him turn in here. And to him who lacks understanding, she says, stolen water is sweet and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. But he who does not know that the dead are there. See, she's calling out. 
Come in here and eat. And she's not even embarrassed. If you're foolish, come on in. We will enjoy it. We will live it up. And Solomon closes out here. But he, the person who goes in to see her, does not know that the dead are there. They are her guests. They are in the depths of Sheol. I think Sheol is hell in the Old Testament. So they don't realize when they enter that door, they're on the path to hell. And so the New Testament picks that up and builds upon it and says, yes, there's wisdom, the wisdom of God. And then there's worldly wisdom, unwise, foolish. And Jesus is our perfect example. We see that in 1 Corinthians. Go to 1 Corinthians one twenty-one. You need to see here that Jesus is called the wisdom of God. He is the perfect wisdom of God. Don't ever say you don't know what the wisdom of God looks like. It's all over the New Testament in Christ. He is the perfect example. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom. So there's two types of wisdom here. There's the wisdom of God, and then there's the wisdom of the world. The world through its wisdom did not come to know God. So unbelievers who don't come to a saving knowledge of God, they don't come to a saving knowledge of Christ. It's because of their worldly wisdom, their sin, their depravity. God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. It sounds foolish. The gospel sounds foolish to the world's wisdom. But God was pleased to work that way. What the world thinks is foolishness is the wisdom of God. For indeed, Jews ask for signs. Show us a sign. Show us some miraculous sign that you said. And Greeks search for wisdom. Let us turn into our minds and our thoughts and our own spirit and our own self and look for wisdom. And let's listen to the philosophers of the age. But we preach Christ crucified. There's wisdom. Christ crucified, God's wisdom. That's the only message that a Christian has. No signs and wonders, no wisdom from the world. Christ crucified. To Jews, that's a stumbling block because they want a sign. To Gentiles, that's foolishness because they want worldly wisdom. But to those who are called, those who've been called by God, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. So he's starting to equate the two there. Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling. Now he goes into how he called us, and most of us are not wise according to the world. And God still calls us. Why? Because it's his wisdom. Now skip down to verse 30. But by his doing, that's God. By God's doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. So that, just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. We think of Christ as our justification, our sanctification, our righteousness. But he's our wisdom. He's the source of our wisdom. He's the place that we get wisdom. He shows us the example, the path, and gives us the power of wisdom. He is the wisdom from God, given to us as believers. So what's the main point of this whole paragraph? Why am I spending so much time on it? Because Christ is the wisdom and he's shown us how to walk and we need to walk according to the scriptures and be careful how we do it. We need to look carefully at our life. He's the savior and king. He's the one who brings us the gospel originally. He's the one who changes our heart. He's the one who paid the price for the gospel's accomplishment. What kind of message would that be if he hadn't paid the price for it? Christ died for you and I. He died for sinners. He died for us. And that is foolishness to the world. 
But to the person who believes, that's the only hope, isn't it? The only hope of salvation. Anyone can hear that message. And if God changes their heart, they can have faith and repent. They can trust in Him and receive the wisdom of God. Because where does the wisdom of the world lead? To hell. To death. The dead are there. Those who have no life. Those who are destined for the pit. But the wisdom of God? That's Jesus Christ. He comes in and changes our heart. He changes our life. He changes our desires. He changes our actions. And we love it. We don't feel like we're being forced. If you're a Christian, you love it. You get up every day and want to do that. So now that we've been redeemed out of this slavery to sin and we've been changed and we've been given a new life, we must love and serve our master. We must love and serve Jesus. So how do we do that? Anytime you're told to do something in the Bible, you need to ask yourself, how do I do that? Okay, we got to walk. I understand what the walk is. Now, how do I do it? Well, Paul loves to lay these out. If you try to diagram this sentence, he's got four main things, four imperatives, four commands. And just like Paul does, the fourth one has four subpoints. But we're not getting to any of that today. We're just covering the first two. So how should we walk in wisdom as believers? Number one, redeem the time. You must redeem the time. Verse 16, making the most of your time. Time? What, what does time have to do with it? I mean, once we're justified, does it really matter what we do? Does it even matter how we use our time? Are we all going to heaven? Let's live it up. No, no. You must make the most of your time. Literally, to, to buy from the market is the word here in Greek. To buy it back from the market. To redeem it. To gain something, especially an advantage or opportunity. All this is packed into one word. To make the most of something. And not only that, not only is this a verb where people would go to the market and buy something, but Paul stuck a preposition on the front and intensified it. He intensified it. He made more emphasis with this word. And he's saying, intensely redeem your time. Make sure, make certain that you are redeeming every moment that God has given you. Don't waste it. Don't waste it is the idea. Redeem it. Buy it back. Make the most of your time. Make it urgent. This is intense. This is urgent. Do it now. There's no time to lose. We're not just waiting around for him to return. He's given us something to do. Read the parable of the unfaithful slave. It was a lazy slave who put the money in the ground and just kicked back. And he was called unfaithful. We're to do something with our time. We're to make the most of every opportunity that comes our way. Every moment is given by God. Every situation that God has placed in your life. It's an opportunity to glorify Him. It's something that He's given you. It's, it's often a trial or a temptation. Sometimes it's a blessing. That can be a trial in itself. What we do with that blessing. Sometimes it's people. There are different ways that God puts things in front of us and gives us every moment to glorify Him. This is what Moses was talking about in Psalm 90. You're probably familiar with this. Psalm 90, 12. So teach us to number our days. Why would we need to count our days? Moses says that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. There it is again, wisdom. We need to present to you, God, a heart of wisdom, a, a heart and a life that's done wisely, that's lived wisely. Help us remember 
that we're going to die. Even as Christians, there's a time coming. We won't be here anymore. We'll have no more time. Jesus understood this. He knew his death was coming. And we know our death is coming. We don't know the exact date like Jesus, but he knew it was coming. You know what he told his disciples in John chapter 9, verse 4? We, he's talking to the disciples, not just himself. We must work the works of him who sent me, the works of God. As long as it is day, night is coming when no one can work. We've got to get after this. Disciples, we've got to go. We've got to do this thing that God has given us to do. Redeem the time. Buy it back. Not literally. You're not making some negotiation, but you're making the most of every opportunity. You're making the most of every situation. The word for time here is not just hours and years. It's a different word in Greek. It means the moments in time, the things that happen in time, the seasons that happen in time. Redeem it. A door is open right now for you to do certain things. A door of opportunity. Maybe with your spouse. Redeem the time. Spend time with them. Spend time in the Word with them. Spend time in prayer with them. With your children. They're only home for a certain time. My kids are going to grow up and leave someday. I've only got so many years. And we don't even know if we have years sometimes with our children, do we? We've got to make the use of that time. What are you doing with them? And he's going to get into that in chapter 6. He's going to talk about parenting. He's going to talk about marriage. Your job. If you're working in the home, out of the home, the job you have now is only for a time. You don't know how long you're going to have it. God has given it to you now. Make the most of it. Not just trying to make as much money as you can, but make the most of it. Why has God put you there? What's your purpose? What are you there to do? How can you glorify God through your work? How can you reach others for Christ through your work? What about this church? God has put this church here. I don't know if we'll be here tomorrow. Lord willing, we will. I mean, we're not going to move away from the truth. But what if God wipes this building out? We'll have to go somewhere else. What if God wipes us all out? What if Jesus comes back? We only have right now. You might get moved. Your job might move you. You might move to be with family. Make the most of your time in this church, with your friends in this church, with your friends outside the church. You only have so much time. Evangelize. Evangelize. Christ is coming back and there's no more evangelism then. That's it. Judgment comes. Your family members, evangelize. Your children, your spouse, your co-workers, your extended family. Every opportunity that God gives you. Everyone. Be looking for it. Be ready for it. We must speak of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jonathan Edwards preached a great sermon on this. I'm not going to quote his whole sermon, but it's, it's almost worth quoting. He said, we know not how little of it remains, speaking of time. We don't know how much remains, whether a year or several years or only a month, a week or a day. We are every day uncertain whether that day will not be the last or whether we are to have the whole day. We're not even given tomorrow. You don't know when the Lord's going to call you home. Unbeliever, you, you don't know when you're going to die and not have another opportunity to hear the gospel and believe. Why redeem the time, Paul says? Because the days are evil. How do you walk wisely? You redeem the time. You make the most of every opportunity. Why? Because the days are evil. The days are evil. This is an evil age. Until Christ returns to make all things perfect, we live in an evil age. You really don't have to look far to see that. You can see that on the news, on the internet on the radio, TV. But we also live in an evil age because we're still struggling with the world, the flesh, and the devil. It's not just out there, but we're still struggling with some evil in here, even as Christians. 
and evil that affects our family and affects those close to us. It's an evil age. There's no neutral here. It's not as if you're somewhere in between. You know, today I'm just going to be a neutral person. Not going to glorify God, but I'm not going to go into evil. No, it's already an evil age. So what happens if it's already an evil age and you're not working to make the most of every opportunity? You're going to drift back into being like the evil age, being like the evil world. Either you're living for the Lord or or living for yourself. There's only two gears in the Christian life, forward or backwards. Forward or backwards. You're either moving forward in your growth in Christ's likeness or you're going backwards. Christians got to be extremely careful with how they spend their time. We fall into many traps. Edwards lists three main traps in his sermon. I think these are good. Idleness. That's laziness. That's wasting our time. Christians fall into idleness. Don't squander away your time. Don't squander away your resources. God has given you things for this moment. Why would you waste it? Also, seeking after worldly things. We waste our time by seeking after worldly things. Money, honor, respect, promotions, all-American, picture-perfect family. That's our idol. That's the thing we're looking at. And thirdly, he mentions spending time and doing evil. Just doing sin. We waste our time looking at things we shouldn't look at. Thinking of things we shouldn't think about. Spending time in sinful immorality. Edward says, time is so short. And the work which we have to do is so great that we have none of it to spare. The work which we have to do to prepare for eternity must be done in time or it never can be done. Must be done in time now. Every good work you do has a reward in heaven. Yes, eternity with Christ is its own reward. But how we live out that eternity will be blessed even more by doing the good works now that he will give us a reward for later. Psalm 139, 17. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance. And in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. Before you were ever born, God has set a time frame on your life. And that's all you have. So you've got to make the most of every opportunity, every day, every moment, every second. You're not sitting around being anxious all the time. Oh, Lord, am I, am I making the most of this moment? But you are thinking, am I glorifying the Lord? Am I doing what he wants me to do? Am I making godly decisions? Let's make the most of our time so we walk wisely. Number two, we've got to comprehend God's will. We've got to comprehend His will. We've got to understand it. We've got to get our minds around what God wants for our life. That's the second way that we walk wisely according to this paragraph. So then, do not be foolish. So he's reaching back to verse 15, and he's restating the main point in a different way here. Don't be foolish. Foolish here means pertaining to a lack of prudence or good judgment. Senseless, ignorant. In other words, you you can't be foolish when it comes to God's will. You can't be ignorant of God's will for your life. Christianity is not a passive sport where you're just sitting in the stands watching everybody else do it. That's foolish. But do something, he says. Contrasted to foolishness, understand what the will of the Lord is. Comprehend it. Literally bring it together in your mind. What you've learned Bring it together in your mind. Have an intelligent grasp of it. Challenge your thinking with it. Let it challenge your thinking, we should say, with the Bible. Practice it. It's more than just knowledge here. Again, comprehending something is learning what 
It is the content, but then thinking about the consequences of doing it. So when Paul says, don't live like the world, because those people are not going to inherit the kingdom of God, let's think about that. Let's comprehend what that means. And when he says, do live like Christ, because those people will inherit eternity. Let's think about that. What does it mean to live like Christ? Because there's consequences to that. Get your mind around it. Comprehend it. It's not just knowledge. A child can understand that a car is made up of parts. You might even be able to teach your child the names of those parts. But a young child can't understand how all of those go together to make the car run. Comprehension is putting things together in your mind by the power of the Spirit so you live a godly life. And he says, comprehend the will of the Lord. Understand it. Have an intelligent grasp of what God has to say about your life. You better know the will of God. And here it's even more specific. It's Jesus, the Lord. The Lord's always Jesus in Ephesians. Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. We read that, didn't we, in Mark chapter 3. Whoever does God's will, that's Jesus' brother and sister. That's a believer. Do God's will. And we've got to know what God's will is. Now, often Christians think that God's will is mystical. There's something out there. We, we can't find it. We can't discover it. Maybe this book has it. This kid who went to heaven. Maybe he'll show us God's will. Maybe your best life now, that's, that's probably a, a good way to look for God's will. Or, or maybe Jesus calling. This woman who's heard from Jesus is God's will. We look all over the place. Except the most obvious. Right here. This is God's will. He specifically says that multiple times. This is God's will for your life. Now, there is a secret will of God. There is His hidden will. The things that He has planned that will come to pass. His providence. The things that we don't ever know about until they actually happen. You cannot discover God's secret will. Who you're going to marry, what job you're going to take, when you're going to move here, when you're going to die. You can seek and people do. They use all kinds of demonic ways to try to figure those things out. You can't. That's God's secret hidden will. But He has given us His revealed will. The scriptures, his prescribed will, how we're supposed to live, what we're supposed to do. What's God's will for my life? It's right there in the Bible. Moses said in Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. Can't know them. They belong to him. But the things revealed belong to us and our sons forever, that we may observe all the words of his law. How do we know God's will for us? Know the Bible. Start with that. Live it out then you're comprehending the will of God for your life. Spend your time trying to determine what the will of God is in Scripture. Not in some book, not in some special seminar where you walk circles around and try to figure out God's will. It's right there. How much clearer could it be? That takes work, doesn't it, to study the Bible? We've got to work at it. We've got to think about how it all fits together. That's comprehension. So what is the will of Christ for your life? Well, there's two main things. The will of Christ for your life, first of all, is understanding how you've been saved as a Christian. You've got to understand how you've been saved. He spent all of chapter 1, 2, and 3 doing that. Chapter 1, God predestined you. Chapter 1, God chose you. The Son redeemed you. The Spirit sealed you. It's God's will that all of His elect will come to salvation. Paul told us that in chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 2, understand that you were dead in your sin, that you did nothing, that you can't boast. It's all of God's grace. That was chapter 2, wasn't it? That you can't pat yourself on the back. It was all of God's grace. Chapter 3, God's will is 
Our salvation is with other people in the church, Jews and Gentile together. And that glorifies God. And you know what it also does, he said? It teaches the angels something because they did not understand how the church would come together, how Jew and Gentile could be reconciled. Galatians 1.4, Paul says, Christ, who gave himself for our sins so that he might rescue us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. Salvation, that's God's will. That his elect would be saved. But also sanctification. You need to understand how salvation actually happened. When you look back, you realize, wow, that was God's grace. And then when you look forward, you're thinking about sanctification. That's also the will of God. That's Ephesians 4 through 6, isn't it? God's revealing to us how we're to live. God's revealing to us how to please Him, how to glorify Him. Romans 12, 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is. That which is good and acceptable and perfect. Live out what's in Scripture. Let it transform you and you're proving, you're showing, you're giving evidence of the will of God in your life. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3. For this is the will of God. All right, what is it, God? Where am I going to live? What job am I going to take? This is the will of God, your sanctification. Your sanctification. That is, you abstain from sexual immorality. So there he's focusing on one big sin issue. 1 John 2, 17. The world is passing away and also it's lust, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. Christians do the will of God. They want to. They're being sanctified. Hebrews 10, 36. For you have need of endurance so that you will have done the will of God. Then you may receive what was promised. And he'll finish up even in Ephesians, or near the end here, Ephesians 6, 6. Slaves, obey your masters, not by the way of eye service, as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Sanctification. Well, what about who I'm going to marry, and where I'm going to live, and what school I'm going to go to? If you know God's will in the Scriptures, you'll be able to make wise decisions. Not every time. But more times than not, the better you know God's word, the better you're living it out, the better you're around other Christians who can give you godly advice and you can hear godly things being taught and preached, the better wise decisions you'll make in life. The Bible's not there to tell you every single day what to do every single second. It's there to lead to your sanctification. And part of comprehending the will of God is figuring those things out from the wisdom you've gotten from Scripture. Just know the Bible. Live it out. And then make the best decisions you can based on that. Make sure your own heart is not leading you to sin in your decisions and walk in the will of God. So to walk wisely in the world, we must use every moment God gives us wisely and we must understand what His will is for our lives. Imagine imagine your Christian life and what it would be like if you did these two things. we got more next week. But if you just did these two things and you, you got better and better at them, what would your life be like? Imagine your marriage, your parenting, your worship, your fellowship with the body. How would redeeming the time change your prayer life, your Bible study life? We're called by God's word here to live like Christ taught us. And he said, walk wisely. Walk wisely. Let's pray now that we would do that. Let's ask for his help. Father, we do need your help to walk wisely. We forget these things. We get lazy. We get idle. We think about our own desires. We say it's too much, it's too hard. We use all these excuses of the world. But we know you've given us everything we need. You have, you've given us the Spirit. You've given us Christ. 
and you're our Father. You've given us your word. It is sufficient. It is sufficient for faith and practice. Help us. Put a zeal in our heart to walk in wisdom, to do these things, not to earn anything, but to live a more godly life, to be more like Christ, to exemplify our Lord and Savior. Pray that you would help us to do that as a whole church. In the name of Christ, amen.